Welcome to friends. Welcome to friends. Welcome to weekends, friends. <laughs> that was a bad intro. Um, how I'm are Chandler. you guys doing? She's such a Monica. <laughs> <laughs> I hate when I get ahead of myself. Like I want to get the words out, and j- like I'm in such a rush that I'll just skip words. Sometimes it happens on a regular yeah. basis. I need to just like chill and relax. But I'm excited about the show. Like we have so many great uh, interviews to share with you today. We're not doing one, but two interviews. Uh, two. Nando, We're switching you it up, give baby. Taste. Switching mm-hmm. it up. We're doing two interviews. We got Ross Barkin talking about Andrew Cuomo. And we got the vice president of the of the painters union, who which we talked about last week. Um, we're going to talk to him, and it's going to be great. So yeah. yes, yes, lots of things have happened uh, since we spoke to you guys last week. Um, we have updates on the stimulus bill. Unfortunately, some pretty negative updates. Uh, we have the interviews uh, where we will discuss the pro act, which is what um, Nando's decode segment was on. Uh, Biden did something surprising regarding the, um, you know, effort to unionize in Bessemer, Alabama. Uh, do we believe what he has to say about it? We'll discuss. Um, and in my decode today, we're going to talk about the politics of personal responsibility and how mm. Democrats are really bungling this uh, moment, uh, this political opportunity for themselves uh, because they're awful, absolutely awful. Uh, but before we get to all of that, Nando, I think mm. we should tell the people about one of the best book clubs to join in this country. One of the best, the best. It's the Verso the Book Club. <laughs> and if you join the Verso Book Club, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, books, and merch for as long as you are a subscriber. Each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month for every ebook published. And the comrade tier is $20 a month. And if you join in March, you'll get Silicon Values, The Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism by Gillian C. York. Tomorrow, Sex Will Be Good Again, Women and Desire in the Age of Consent by Catherine Angel. Wow, I need to get that one. Liberalism at Large, The World According to the Economist by Alexander Zevin, and a new edition of The Emancipated Spectator by Jacques Rancière. I think that's mm. how you pronounce that name. Some provocative titles there. I like it. Yeah. Sex will be good again tomorrow. Yeah. Finally, I've been waiting for that. <laughs> Jesus. Um, I will withhold comment because I... Uh, I don't feel like I need that book, but I'll read it. I'll still Epa! read it. <laughs> Muy anyway. caliente, el show de Jacobin <laughs> Okay, we're already having too much fun. So I'm going to bring it down a notch by talking about how disastrous Democrats are. Um, <laughs> segway. <laughs> oof, yes, definitely Speaking of segway. sex, so, you heard of a bisexual <laughs> senator. Yes, yes. Uh, apparently, that's the only thing she wants us to focus on. But that is not going to be the topic of discussion today. Uh, Kirsten Cinema decided to vote down the $15 an hour minimum wage in the coronavirus relief bill. This was an amendment that uh, Senator Bernie Sanders wanted to force a vote on in the Senate. And uh, we now have a clear idea of which senators are against, uh, and I'm specifically talking about Democratic senators, mm. are against including the $15 an hour minimum wage in the uh, stimulus bill. And uh, the person who got the most attention for voting it down was Senator Kirsten Cinema, who, uh, let's bring the video up, decided to kind of do a celebratory vote down 
<laughs> there was no reason for her to vote that way. Uh, she gave a thumbs down. You know, she was she seemed very jovial uh, during this moment and understand what that no vote means. It means that she is against ensuring that people in this country get something close to a living wage. At this point, $15 an hour still isn't enough if you take inflation into account. Um, but Nando, you know, does she really deserve the ire she's getting on, you know, the ire of the people on uh, social media today and yesterday? Yes, absolutely. 100%. I mean, this is just one of the most grotesque bits of political theater that I can remember. Just like everything about it. I mean, uh, Megan Day tweeted at me. She was like, if a, a, car a skilled cartoonist couldn't even capture like, uh, you know, a caricature of just blasé contempt as perfectly as cinema did when she voted down the $15 minimum wage. I mean, it was just, it's one of those things that will, it's one of those images that, that I won't, I will never forget. I will never forget it. Just like that. <laughs> it sucks for you. Totally. Ugh. Totally. Yeah. And, and what's strange or maybe not so strange, maybe it's um really, this is maybe a commentary on what, it means to get elected into Congress, um, having certain core beliefs, and then all of a sudden um, changing who you are fundamentally. Th th yeah. There's obviously something wrong with the system. But in 2014, uh, Kirsten Cinema seemed to have a very different take on the minimum wage. I want to share that tweet with you. Um, oh. You know, this was making its rounds. Uh, you want to read it, Nando? Because you found this. A, a full-time minimum wage earner makes less than $16,000 a year. This one's a no-brainer. Tell Congress to hashtag rage the wage. So what happened? I don't know. I mean, Kristen Cinema is just one of the most baffling people in our politics. I mean, she was in the Green Party back in the day. She was a uh, anti-Iraq war activist, like out on these streets, you know, like some like some college radical. Um, and now she's just like, uh, and now she's uh, uh, Elisa Silverstone and Clueless, just going like as f. <laughs> well, it's poor funny because people. <laughs> she totally reminds me of someone who who's just like stuck in like the early 1990s. Um, yeah. And and but like, I, look, it's not about what she's wearing. And I know that people like to dunk on her for that. I dunked on her for that. But I did it <laughs> after she tried to pretend as if all of the uh, negative commentary and criticism she's getting right now has to do with the fact that she's a woman or because of the way she dresses. No one actually cares about that. And this tweet by Amanda Turkle, who's a reporter, mm -hmm. it, it put me over the edge yesterday because this is what we see from corporate Democrats over and over again. So uh, Amanda Turkle says, Senator Cinema's spokesperson said it's sexist to comment mm. on a female politician's body language or physical demeanor when Huffington Post uh, inquired about her thumbs down vote on minimum wage. Okay. Uh, and by the way, a dismissive okay is the right way to respond to this because I, I want to be crystal clear about why it's so disgusting to see someone like Kirsten Cinema use sexism or weaponize sexism to deflect. It, it pretends as if she's not in a position of power. It first of all, of course, the whole intention is to deflect and to weaponize uh, sexism in order to essentially quiet down anyone who dare say 
anything negative about what she did yesterday. So don't fall for that, okay? Mm. But the other part of it that that I, I really want people to understand is she's not some sort of victim. She's a United States senator. She's a person in a position of power who is using that position of power to continue keeping people in poverty in this country. She's not using it for good. But at the end of the day, she's in power. We are not. So if you have something negative to say about her outfit, she can handle it. She's a big girl. And if she can't handle it, she has no business serving in the United States Senate. She has no business representing anyone. And, you know, the... the I think something like 60% of the people earning minimum wage in this country are women. So actually, Kristen Cinema, you're the sexist for doing the down vote, uh, not us for being horrified by your just utter callousness and um, psychopathic monstrosity. I don't know. Like, it's just you're the sexist, not us. Like, I hate, I like, no more patience for this kind of cynical identity politics bullshit. I mean, I, 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 I get the feeling that it, that it's not working as much as it used to. Like it's it, it, this used to be like a debate ender, you know. This used to be like, and there mm-hmm. used to be like liberals who would like, you know, you know what, you know what, like you, you know, you should really check yourself. And um, it's just, I don't think that it has the same um, level of purchase as it used to. But they're still they're still trotting it out. They're still using it, and it's just it has oh, to yeah. stop. Like it has to end. It's just so cynical and disgusting. I mean, when there was pressure for Kamala Harris to overrule the parliamentarian, which is a no-brainer, right? She was just on radio interviews talking about how the fight for a $15 an hour minimum wage is like what her top priority. <laughs> well, then overrule the Senate. Pri- what are you talking about? Overrule the Senate parliamentarian. And, uh, you know, there's been this, I guess he's a K-Hive guy who completely lost it that I was demanding anything of Kamala Harris. And of course, like the accusations of racism, so weaponizing race, um, that was immediately injected into the conversation on social media. But I don't, I don't really care, right? Because I think that most people recognize how these accusations get used as a way to prevent people from questioning people in positions of power or, or yeah. demanding things of the people who got elected to provide representation for people, to provide policies that actually benefit people's lives. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm so deeply embarrassed by the Democratic Party. Like, we knew they were bad. But what happened yesterday with uh, Kirsten Sinema's behavior, I, it really took it to another level yeah. um, because it was just like rubbing it in people's faces, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, the parliamentarian thing, I mean, I just can't get over that. They're just like, they're just pulling stuff out of the hat. I mean, this really like, it's a new, it's, it's not a norm that has ever been enforced like this in the past for any major piece of legislation. It's just, it's just not. I'm like, stop it. The nerds who are like, you know, digging up something like, stop. It's just, it's really not like the Bush administration fired the parliament. Like, I don't even want to, I don't even want to like justify it. It's not even necessary to do the justification. It's just so, so utterly preposterous that they would allow this to happen. And it's just, it, it is their, their little song and dance. It's like, let's find a new thing to make an excuse for not doing the thing that our constituents want. Let's, we got to find a new thing. They're going to come up with something new eventually. Like, we're going to forget about the parliamentarian and they're going to come up with some new norm some new position some new person that is going to say like nope you can't do it um and they're just gonna be like well we can't do it 
So it's it it just it just drives me crazy. But the the whole I, process, I, I, yeah. The thing that's been actually driving me crazy, Nando, and I know that you were already on this boat um, probably earlier than I was. Every time I see a Democrat, including progressive Democrats, tweet about how outraged they are, I want to like, I lose my yeah. mind. I can't take yeah. it. Like, get off of Twitter. I don't care what your feelings are. I don't care about how allegedly yeah. outraged you are. Like, stop tweeting about this and go do something. Like, I just feel like Twitter has become the end goal of policy yeah. at this point. It's yeah, ugh, it's getting so getting like a viral tweet or 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 you know doing some sort of sassy comeback to like a Republican senator or something that has become the end goal of politics um, mm -hmm. now. Like the whole like raise the minimum wage, pass it on. It's like you're a freaking senator. I, I pass it on to you. You know, like I pass it on to you. You can pass it back on to me. Pass it on to you. You know, <laughs> god damn it. <laughs> That's and, hilarious. Well, you know what they are passing on, um, or at least they're, and I'm talking about Democrats debating. Yeah, there's among no one Republicans another. are involved in this at all. Like this, yeah. this is what's remarkable about this because we haven't heard from Mitch McConnell. We haven't heard from any of these Republicans. I mean, they've tried to do some shenanigans and stuff, and it hasn't worked. But like, it's like this is 100 percent a Democratic Party thing. This is just no Republicans are involved. None of them. None of them. They're completely out of it. And this like all of this nonsense is just intra Democrat bullshit, really. And it just it's it's remarkable to see because like, you know, forever we've been told like beat over the head, vote blue, no matter who. Oh, no matter who. Oh, I see. Now is when those chickens are coming home to roost. Because we're oh, seeing definitely. what that what that kind of mindset brings you. It brings you this. Just a Purely self-inflicted wound. Um, and I think it's worth going to uh, this next video because it gives you a sense of how uh, conservative Democrats aren't done yet. If you think that stripping the uh, coronavirus relief bill of a $15 an hour minimum wage was where they'd stop, no, they're going further. So let's take a look at what they're trying to do now. The bill would provide billions to fight COVID, help small businesses, and send $1,400 direct payments to most Americans. This week, in a concession to moderate Democratic senators, Biden agreeing to limit those payments to people making up to $75,000 a year. People making up to $80,000 would get a smaller check. And today, Democratic leaders offered up another concession, proposing to extend unemployment benefits through September, but to shrink the payments from $400 a week to $300. Uh, they're going to keep doing stuff like this. And I'm... I know that electoral politics matter, but I, 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 it, it doesn't matter to the same extent as getting people organized and forming unions because what change it, like the difference that we're seeing today versus, you know, what happened following the Great Depression is labor unions. Like the, we're, we have no power right now. So we can get mad about it. We can talk about it on the show. You know, we can tweet about it. The reason why they're doing this and they're doing it out in the open is because they know we can't do anything about it. Yeah. And I'm and yeah. I don't care about like, oh, here's another like Democrat who looks shiny and new and and says all the right things. This is going to be the the hero who's going to say none of them are heroes, guys. None of them. 
No one member of Congress or no small caucus in Congress is going to do what we need them to do. Like electoral politics at this point is a small percentage uh, of what the focus should be on. That's not to say that you should completely like bow out and not pay attention to it at all. I think it's part of a, a bigger strategy, but I'm just tired of like every election cycle. Oh, here's a new slate of progressive Democrats and they're so wonderful and they're all going to do the, the the great thing of making sure that, that we get $15 an hour minimum wage. They, they don't do it. They don't do it. There's pressure. There could be pressure behind the scenes that they can engage in. They're not doing it. They're just not. Mm. They're not. Yeah. They're afraid of Democratic leadership. They're afraid of Nancy Pelosi. That's the truth. And I'm not doing this to, to you know, attack any particular lawmaker. I'm not into that. I'm saying this to really emphasize that if all of our focus is on electoral politics, we're never going to get what we need. It's just that's why yeah. I love that this show talks about uh, the the effort to unionize in Bessemer, um, Alabama with the Amazon workers, the PRO Act, which Nando went into great detail last week. If you missed that, please check that out. We're going to do an interview with someone on the uh, on the PRO Act today. This is the stuff that matters. I, everything else at this point just feels like noise. Yeah. I mean, we, we obsess about certain politicians um, and what's in their hearts and what's in their what's in their brain. And we can never know that. We can never know truly what their motivations are. We can never, it's impossible. It's literally impossible. It's a fool's errand. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right. The only thing that matters is, is to what extent there is power behind them. You know what? It's all about power. That's what it is. And, and just simply electing a, a good person who has, has some nice things and knows the right words doesn't really matter that much at the end of the day if they don't have power. Conversely, we could, if we had power and we elected bad people, it wouldn't matter either. It doesn't matter because because the power forces them to do the things we want. That's it. You know, like that. That is like well understood in other places of the world. That like the moral character of a certain individual politician doesn't matter. Now I'll admit like I fanboy hard on Bernie. Like I, I love him. He's, he's the man. I trust him. Mm -hmm. He's a, a, such an exception to my analysis usually because yeah. like, and he's just, he really is just kind of like a, an outlier miracle. Like it's not, he's not normal. Um, but everyone else is just an, you know, they'll do things because responding to power incentives and that's it. Um, so right. yeah, we got to stop obsessing over it and we just got to figure out ways to build power and they're useful to, you know, as instruments of power. Um, but kind of digging through every tweet to figure out exactly what is going on inside their hearts or something is just, it's a fool's errand. It doesn't, their tweets it doesn't matter. Are super irrelevant. Their tweets yeah. are the most irrelevant thing that you could possibly look at as an indication or of what's to come in the future. Like it's just it's totally irrelevant. All it is is posturing, it's branding, it's positive PR for themselves. They I mean, you can judge based on actions they take. Um and when you really take a step back and you see what's happening, Democrats are caving to conservatives because they're worried about Joe Manchin holding up the bill over a $15 an hour minimum wage or over all the other issues that were mentioned in that ABC video. 
uh, $400 a week unemployment insurance, all of that stuff. They're worried about. So why why can't we have progressives hold it up? Unless it has things that are incredibly popular among the electorate. Yeah. Why, why, why won't they do that? Why is Joe Manchin willing to do that? And I don't even, why don't we call his bluff, right? I don't know. It's just, it's yeah. frustrating. And it's because we have no power. That's the, at the end no of the power. day, that's what it is. And that's not to be defeatist. That's no. to say, we need to identify what the issues are and talk about what needs to be done to accumulate power. And, and, and actually serve as competition to corporate interests, because right now we don't. Yeah. That's how you can have someone like Kirsten Cinema in 2014 say that we absolutely need to increase the minimum wage. This is ridiculous. And then you fast forward to 2021, and she's like celebrating voting down a $15 an hour minimum wage. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway, Nando, we do it? let's do it. Uh, we're starting with your decode today. Great. Well, I wanted to talk about the climate because, folks, it's bad. It's very bad. On this show, we recently discussed the freezing temperatures in Texas, for example. Here in California, we're constantly ravaged by massive wildfires. And meanwhile, the polar ice caps are melting at a rate that is much, much faster than even the worst doomsday scenarios had anticipated, which is only going to exacerbate all of this. But luckily, we have a guy in the White House who believes in freaking science now. The science, folks, you gotta believe it. So one of the first things Joe Biden did when he got into office was to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Great. And the guy he put in charge of his administration's climate policy is a familiar face to those of us who remember the early aughts. That's right. It's the windsurfing New England Patriots logo himself, John Kerry. That's right. John Kerry is Joe Biden's special presidential envoy for climate. Now, John Kerry is a smart man. He believes the science. Surely, he understands that we need bold, decisive action by the government to spend billions, if not trillions of dollars to fundamentally reorganize our society in order to save the planet. Where do you see financing being secured from? Because ESG investing has been hot. Do you think there's the capital to get this done, sir? Yes, there is the capital. Of course, there's the capital. There's some $51 trillion of capital uh, <laughs> you know, in, in, in the marketplace now looking for places to go. Uh, it's one of the reasons why SPACs have become so popular, a quick way to market with capital in these areas. And that's ESG is in every boardroom today. People are discussing both ESG and SDGs as investing, but they're also beginning to really focus in, as you see with Hank Paulson's new fund, uh, on specific climate-related investment, of which there are enormous opportunities out there. Huh? SPACs, ESGs, SDGs, former Bush Secretary of Treasury and former Goldman Sachs CEO Hank Paulson as a fund for green stuff. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that all sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook to me. I mean, Kerry said it right there in his answer. There are $51 trillion in cash just sitting there waiting to be spent. Maybe if instead of begging the Hank Paulsons of the world to invest some of that into green tech, I don't know, maybe the government could see some of that cash and decide what to do with it democratically. But no, the only solution that the good science-loving liberals can come up with is to beg billionaires to direct their capital towards green tech. Enter Bill Gates. Bill Gates just released a book called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, The Solutions We Have and the Breakthroughs 
we need. I reckon you will not receive that one if you join the Verso Book Club. So Bill Gates has spent the last few weeks on a press tour promoting his book and talking about his solution to the climate problem. And here's a hint. He believes that the private sector is the key to solving this. But can the problem be solved if big businesses and Microsoft and Apple and Google and others have have announced very ambitious plans, but they are all idiosyncratic. I mean, they're doing it on their own. Can it work if everybody's doing it on their own? Or does it effectively require regulation and laws? Over time, you'll you'll have uh, regulations that will drive the market uh, for green products. But even before it gets to the stage of having those regulations, having enlightened companies create markets for some of the uh, earlier stage green products like green steel or green cement, that will be super important. Having the, the tech companies figure out how to run their data centers 24 hours a day without using ever using any coal-based generation uh, that will drive the market uh, for storage products. Uh, we wouldn't want icky government regulation. We want enlightened companies creating markets. But wait, there's more. Bill Gates is not doing this on his own. He's inviting his other billionaire friends to the climate party. Gates has already invested $2 billion of his own money on new green technologies and plans to spend several billion more. In 2016, he also recruited Jeff Bezos, Mike Bloomberg, and nearly two dozen other wealthy investors to back a billion-dollar fund called Breakthrough Energy Ventures, making long-term, often risky investments in promising technologies. Isn't that cute? I mean, they should make a montage out of that. Just Bill Gates going down his list of billionaire friends and calling them up and asking, are you in or are you out? But folks, I hate to break it to you. The billionaires, they're not going to save us. In fact, when it comes to climate change, it is the billionaires themselves who are the problem. Well, they make up just 1% of the world's population, but produce more pollution than the poorest 50%. The rich are racing through Earth's finite carbon budget, which scientists warn could run out within a decade. That's the warning of a new report from Oxfam. That's right. According to Oxfam, the global 1%, i.e. billionaires like Bill Gates and his friends, are responsible for twice as many emissions as the lower half of the planet meaning that a small group of rich assholes emit twice as much as 3 billion people. Moreover, if we look at the means of production, according to a report, just 100 companies have been the source of more than 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions since 1988. So don't be fooled by the PR that these billionaires are feeding us. To the extent that they care about the climate, they want to fix it in a way that protects their own class privilege. Often, their efforts are largely bullshit. Take the case of Richard Branson, aka Barack Obama's best friend. Back in 2006, Richard Branson pledged to dedicate all of the profits from Virgin Air and rail interests over a span of 10 years to combat climate change. Wow, that is crazy. All of his company's profits for a decade. I mean, that sounds like a remarkable pledge. And it was. It amounted to $3 billion. Well, I guess Sir Richard Branson thought that he could make that announcement and people would eventually forget about it. He didn't count on pesky Naomi Klein following up on that eight years later. So, yeah, I go after Richard Branson because I think 
he's a really interesting case study. I mean, people probably forget this by now, but in 2006, he made this very splashy announcement uh, in New York at the Clinton Global Initiative that he was going to uh, divert all of his profits from his airlines and his trains and, and other parts of his empire that, that were burning carbon and fueling the, the, the climate crisis, that he was going to divert them into developing a form of fuel that didn't have, uh, you know, that didn't emit carbon and, and, and other technologies that would solve the, the climate crisis. And he made this commitment yeah. that it would be $3 billion in the next decade. Um, and so, you know, we're almost out of time. Um, we're eight years into the pledge. And he has got, he's nowhere close. He's, he, he's, his, his, his finances are pretty opaque. It's hard to get a straight answer out of him. Um, I failed. I did get an answer out of him, but it wasn't a straight one. Um, but he's, you know, may- maybe $300 million. It's not even close to where, to, to, to $3 billion. Billion. Womp, womp. You see, whenever you see a billionaire doing something that seems good, we should be very, very suspicious of it. They only want to do good in a way that maintains their own power. For example, Bill Gates famously created something called the Giving Pledge back in 2010. This is where he pledged to give nearly all of his wealth away and signed up a bunch of other billionaires like Warren Buffett and others to to join. Well, Bill Gates is somehow richer today than when he said he was going to give all his money away. So climate change is an existential threat. It's going to require a degree of global cooperation that we've really never seen before. And it's going to require require a degree of international solidarity that is sorely missing right now. But we have to stop seeing the rich as allies in that fight. They are not. They are our enemies. As Lee Phillips points out, from 1990 to 2009, labor's share of national income declined in 26 out of 30 developed economies, according to the OECD. Overall, across advanced economies, labor's share dropped from 66.1% to 61.7%. And as poor as many people are in the developing world, the gap between them and the workers of the global north is less than the gap between the latter and the 1%. That is to say, us ordinary folks in the supposed rich countries are closer in wealth and have far more in common with third world workers than we do with our own bosses. In other words, in order to fight the climate crisis, we have to fight the class war. We cannot fight each other. The rich have all the money needed to bear the cost of transitioning to a green economy, and they are the most responsible for the destruction of the planet. This idea of green capitalism is a bunch of nonsense. The logic of profit will always dictate more and more extraction. So no to rich philanthropy. The rich need to pay higher taxes. That would be a good start. This is my first time at Davos, and, uh, and I find it quite a bewildering experience, to be honest. I mean, 1,500 private yets have flown in here to hear Sir David Attenborough speak about you know, how we're wrecking the planet. And uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters fighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. I mean, this is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid <laughs> philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more. But come on, it's, we got to be talking about taxes. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bullshit, in, in my opinion. Taxes, taxes, taxes. But the rich, they don't want to pay the taxes. They talk a big game about investing billions of their own money in green tech. But when the question turns to taxes, those same billionaires get a little bit more skittish. 
Uh, Bill Gates saying yesterday that he supports higher taxes for the wealthy, but not through wealth tax. I've uh, paid over 10 billion in taxes. I paid more uh, than anyone in taxes. Uh, but I, you know, I'm glad to have paid. You know, if I'd had to pay 20 billion, it's fine. Uh, but you know, when you say I should pay 100 billion, okay, then I'm right. starting to do a little math about. Uh, what I have left over. Sorry. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Isn't he funny? Now, the thorny question is, how do we get the rich to pay taxes? I mean, they're so rich, which means they're very powerful. Powerful enough that powerful politicians like John Kerry are reduced to begging them to invest in stuff we need. This is despite the fact that taxing the rich is one of the most popular policies around. Support for raising taxes is widespread, according to a new poll, which found that 76% of registered voters, including a majority of Republicans, want the wealthiest Americans to pay more. So even though taxing the rich is popular, in actual fact, we still can't do it. So how do we change that balance of power between the uber-rich and regular working folk? Hmm. If only there was something. Oh, I know. Labor unions. We've said it before on this very program, but labor unions are the only way to challenge the power of the capitalist class. There just ain't no other way. Therefore, it is crucial that the struggle for labor power is tied inextricably to the struggle for the environment. Much has been made about the fact that the AFL-CIO supported things like the Keystone XL pipeline in the name of jobs. This is disappointing, but that is somewhat understandable given the weakness of the labor movement in America today. But this was not always the case. Back in the 60s and 70s, when labor was stronger, labor was at the forefront of the environmental movement. One of the leaders of that effort was a guy named Tony Mazzocchi. He was the vice president of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers International Union. He was no one's idea of like a hippie, hacky-sacking tree lover. But watch how he links the struggle of workers to environmental justice. Anthony Mazzocchi is vice president of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union in the United States. He was a pioneer in the fight against chemical hazards in the workplace and for many years was a lone voice in his effort to alert society to the dangers faced by workers. You can build a brand new plant today, have it designed by the finest engineers, make it pollution proof. In a few months or a few years, that plant will be spitting out and belching out what an old plant belches out. Because the crucial fact is that no employer will do what's necessary to maintain a plan. And that's to keep it labor-intensive, to maintain it by maintaining the equipment and keeping sufficient operating personnel on. And that's the secret. Every worker can tell that things were better a bit a while ago because we had more people doing the type of things that are necessary to maintain these facilities. An oil refinery was safer 25 years ago simply because that refinery was brought down each year the six to eight weeks for maintenance. Today, they're kept on stream two, three years until they either break down or they have to really turn them down to repair them. But in the meantime, they're emitting very caustic substances and very polluting substances, which, of course, find their way through the community. The community subsidized that operation by virtue of the fact that they have increased morbidity and mortality in the community. Those death certificates are a subsidy for industry. 
Those death certificates are a subsidy for industry. Now, Mizaki and his union were the driving force behind the creation of the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, better known as OSHA, which protected workers from the toxic chemicals at their workplace, amongst other things. In his profile of Mizaki, Connor Kilpatrick writes in Jacobin, quote, as Mizaki saw it, those chemicals that poisoned his union's rank and file eventually make their way into communities outside through the air, soil, and waterways. The factory was therefore the demon core of the environmental crisis. But as a socialist, Mazaki also knew the job site was a place in which workers potentially had vast powers even under capitalism. It was the workers in these industries who taught me that there was a systematic conflict between profits and health. When you start thinking that, when you start to interfere with the forces of production, you're going to the heart of the beast. If we want to fight the climate crisis... We need to fight the class war. We're not going to solve it through personal responsibility, but through class interests. And if we're going to avoid a climate catastrophe, we need to move beyond capitalism. As Paris Marx writes in Jacobin, green capitalism will never facilitate the scale of action that is necessary to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius or even 2 degrees Celsius because it refuses to take on the powerful people in industries that are fueling the climate crisis in the first place. It continues to ensure the benefits flow to the top while hollowing out the middle class and producing climate narratives that shift the burden of responsibility onto those who have little power to make the necessary changes. The public, if not the global poor. The kind of climate action we need requires taking on the wealthy and organizing around a vision for a different kind of society. That means not just making the rich pay higher taxes, but actively dismantling the economic structures that facilitate their wealth accumulation, treat the planet as an unlimited bounty of free raw materials, and generate all the emissions warming the planet. Uh, that last part was just so, so on point. Um, and and the thing that, God, I had so many thoughts when you were talking, especially about the uh, personal responsibility angle, which, of course, I'm, I'm going to get to during my Decode segment today. Uh, but the all of the onus that we've seen so far has been placed on individuals, and that's been going on for years and years now. Um, and as you've mentioned, as I've mentioned, there's no way that you changing your personal habits um, is going to make up for the amount of pollution that's put out there by these top 100 businesses that are polluting the the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that you included that statistic. Rich philanthropy is not ever really philanthropy. Uh, there are three reasons why rich people engage in ph- philanthropy. Number one, um, it's tax breaks. Uh, they want to save on their taxes. Uh, number two is uh, an effort to influence uh, a department in a university, which is something that the Koch brothers have done. Uh, they'll donate a ton of money to universities, uh, but it's never to uh, just enhance education. Uh, they focus on uh, science departments and it's their way of censoring or, or trying to bog down any actual mm-hmm. factual climate science. And then of course, positive PR. And, and we see this with them, you know, do- donating their money to various foundations, um, art galleries, things, museums, things like that, just for positive PR. Um, but you're right. All of this stuff is irrelevant if you have people power. And, and it's important as we continue having conversations about uh, renewable energies to ensure that we push for a non-privatized model which is why I love like the last part of, of your decode, Nando, because I don't want 
uh, ExxonMobil or any of these other fossil fuel companies to tout their new investments in renewable energies. They should not be leading the way because they should not own the energy. I, I mean, we saw what happened with a privatized, deregulated model in Texas, and I'm terrified that we're just going to shift over to the renewable energy version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be better for the environment, but it's certainly not better for the people, uh, especially since you know these private companies will do whatever it takes to cut costs um, yeah. and increase their profits, which means literally leaving you out in the cold if they have to. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the sort of famous... Uh the famous choice, right? Socialism or barbarism um, is going to be very stark when once the climate crisis becomes like, I mean, it's already really, really bad even today. But like when it becomes like a, you know, real like existential threat to the vast majority of humans, it's going to be a choice. Like, do we want like eco fascism or some form of eco socialism? There's going to be they're going to choose one or the other. It's the only two choices there are, because Mm -hmm. it's going to be so bad that something drastic is going to happen. And you know, the people in power will make drastic decisions to to like protect their own status and protect their own livelihood. Like they want to live in a place that has, you know, unless they, you know, like, did you see this viral story that went out t- this week about like they're building a hotel in outer space <laughs> and it's going to be ready by 2027? No. Yeah, like they're going to build, you know, th- like they might do that. Uh, they're, they're planning for that. Like, you know, that's why Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and all these people are obsessed with that because I think they feel in, on some level that they got to they got to get the hell out of Dodge. Um, yeah, there it is. Um, that's what it's going to look like in 2027. World's first space hotel. Yeah, looks great, doesn't it? Um, meanwhile, like the world is burning, right? So, that, you know, something's going to happen. And this kind mm-hmm. of the the status quo of neoliberal capitalism, whatever we want to call it, like it's going to destroy the planet if it just kind of keeps going. We'll try, we'll try, we'll try. And it's Something drastic will have to change, and it just depends on on who has the power when that change has to happen. And so if we don't build labor power, which is the only way to have people power, the only way to have people power is through labor power. Mm-hmm. If we don't do that, we are going to be living in a world like in sort of like eco-fascist state in which like um, the rich – um, control everything. They live in like these kind of sanctuaries, right? Um, green sanctuaries, and 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 everyone else just kind of suffers the ravages of of climate and are just kind of kept out and and maintained in in the most bare minimum way. You know, like every single science fiction dystopia. <laughs> um, so right, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 we really we really that's that's why all these all these discussions that we have about labor like why like we focused on the bessemer story so early is because like the bessemer story really strikes at the heart of the system right it's amazon like it's it's they're going to be the biggest employer in america in like the next one or two years um like just that is the heart of the of the system like that is that is symbolically so important like if these people win these like and this isn't like people in a warehouse in new york or whatever like a much more kind of unionized state where there's much this is in Bessemer, Alabama. This is poor. This is yeah. a right to work state. This is, you know, in the deep south. The last like it's a symbolic victory that you can imagine maybe possibly being the seeds of something more, of something that can inspire people all around the country and all around the world to reverse the trends that we've seen for four decades of neoliberalism. Like we just have to do it in some way. And you, you have to find these embers where you can find them and try to put a, put a little, blow a little, 
you know, blow a little air into them so that they can so they can burst into a large flame. And if they if that flame gets big enough, we've seen in the past that the that the expansion can be very rapid. You know, like mm-hmm. like the militancy of of the labor movement and the, the size of it, like. In even in hundred over a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, like at certain points would like spread like wildfire. So we need to find those embers and we need to blow on them like a little, just a light, you know, help you know push them along, yeah. and then maybe they can maybe they can form a giant flame. <laughs> yeah, you're right, and, and as Jane McAlevey says, um, winds matter. You know, winds motivate people; they inspire people, and and I, I think you're absolutely right in what you're saying. Um, which reminds me, you know, in your pro uh, act segment that you did last week, you mentioned, uh, you know, some of the lip service that Biden gave to labor during his campaigning, uh, but he hadn't at that point said a single word about the effort to unionize uh, in Bessemer. Yeah. After that, he actually did release a video on social media. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it was strong. What he yeah. was saying was strong. And, um, if I believed him, I would probably celebrate it a little more. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe I'm being unfair. Uh, well, no, do you it, think it, it's just lip service or? I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure. I mean, it doesn't, the point is it doesn't matter. It doesn't even you know? matter. It doesn't yeah. matter. He, he said it, you know, and it's true that it, it is true that like, whether he's full of shit or not, it doesn't really matter. Like he did give a public show of support, which I reckon will give a lot of people in Bessemer, like the self, like the president, he's the president of the United States. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, um, and it is true that, um, Biden's statement was probably the first time a president weighed in on a specific labor battle, um, in like, 50 years like since maybe the truman administration or something like it's like people have debated like what but like certainly in many 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 decades um and again it's not because biden is a uniquely good guy it's not that he's like intrinsically better than someone like barack obama who said nothing about any specific labor fight that he then produced a documentary about it after he was president and didn't do anything while he was president but that's that's a whole nother story um it's because you know, we talk about how the left doesn't have much power, but it has more power than it did in 2008. Now it has it, it is more aware of itself. It is more muscular and self-confident. There is more media. There is more left media. All these things are true and they have a, a little bit of an effect. And and this is just this is just a, a, a sign of the changing times that the fact that the president of the United States weighed in on this like he felt he had to. It's not because he wanted to. Because he felt he had to. And it doesn't matter what's in his heart or whether he's sincere or not. The fact is he did it. So, Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Well, I do want to talk a little bit about the politics of personal responsibility. Yes. Um, it's something that we should all have, at least in the back of our minds, as we see all of these uh, uh, coronavirus relief debates taking place and like what the underlying message is uh, to the American people from these United States lawmakers. Uh, so let's get into it. Let's get after it, as Chris Cuomo would say. So there's a lot of grief within the GOP over whether traditional conservatives like Representative Liz Cheney or Senator Mitch McConnell can cut out what they naively think is the temporary strain or stain of the Trump administration. But voters within the Republican Party clearly disagree with them. They love Trump so much that he's actually considering running for president again in 2024. But who knows? Who knows? I may even decide to beat them for a third time. Okay? 
beautiful third down. Now, Trump doesn't plan on uh, forming a third party. In fact, he noted so much during that same speech. But if he decided to, recent polling shows that nearly half of Republican voters would literally leave the party to join one that's led by Donald Trump. Uh, in this uh, Sioux Folk University USA Today poll of Trump voters, 46% say they ditched the GOP for another if the twice impeached Trump were at the helm. Now, more traditional conservatives like Senator Mitt Romney might be critical of Donald Trump. He might even vote in favor of impeaching Donald Trump. However, he can't deny Trump's popularity. And uh, you're about to hear a very defeated sounding Mitt Romney in this next clip. And so there's a populist movement on the right in our country and on the left. And those movements, I don't believe, are going to be going away anytime soon. Although I think over time... Uh, that policies that, that endure and that really help the American family will be more successful. So I remain, if you will, a more traditional conservative than, than some of the populist uh, rhetoric within my party. Will, will President Trump continue to play a role in my party? I, I'm sure he will. He, he has by far the largest voice and a big impact in my party. I don't know about his family members, whether they intend to do that, but, but I expect he will continue playing a role. I don't know if he'll run in 2024 or not, but if he does... Uh, I'm pretty sure he will win the nomination. Romney's absolutely right. I think he's absolutely right about that. And I think it's worth understanding what made Trump, or at least a big part of what made Trump so popular among the Republican electorate and why that popularity has lasting power. Trump was a departure from the Republican branding of personal responsibility. That talking point has been used incessantly, not just by Republican lawmakers, but also Democratic lawmakers as well. Americans had grown so accustomed to politicians shifting the blame onto workers who had lost their jobs as manufacturing plants shut down and companies downsized. Uh, the absence of strong labor unions also allowed for this practice to grow, as Barbara Ehrenreich notes in her book, Brightsided, which I recommend reading. She writes this, that on the eve of the Great Depression, in the highly politicized 1920s, there had been plenty of labor organizers and radical activists around to rail about the excesses of the rich and the misery of the poor. In the 21st century, a very different and more numerous breed of ideologues promulgated the opposite message, that all was well in our deeply unequal society. For those willing to make the effort, it was all about to get much, much better. But Trump actually flipped the script in 2016, and The Atlantic perfectly explained how he did it. Uh, they write that Trump speaks less about personal responsibility than any Republican presidential nominee since Reagan. Trump blames multinational corporations more than any Republican nominee ever has. And uh, the piece just goes into more detail about how uh, Trump went with this messaging and really ran with it. Under Reagan, for instance, Republicans demanded personal responsibility from African-Americans and ignored the same cultural problems when displayed by whites. Under Trump, Republicans acknowledged that whites exhibit those same pathologies. Trump, for instance, uh, spoke frequently during the campaign about drug addiction in white rural states like New Hampshire. But instead of demanding personal responsibility, Trump's GOP promises state protection. 
Now, Trump was smart enough to latch onto a popular message that Romney was too slow to realize. And before I start getting the angry uh, direct messages, let me just say, obviously, Trump didn't deliver on these promises. Obviously, Trump was just paying lip service. He didn't actually carry out any of the policies that he claimed he would to protect workers. However, Mitt Romney uh, didn't even care to acknowledge these issues. And in fact, he went out of his way to really demonize people who were looking from help from the government. So four years before Trump clinched the 2016 GOP nomination, Romney bungled his own presidential bid by defaming 47% of the country as moochers during a speech in front of his wealthy donors. Here's a piece of that. There are 47% of the people who vote for the president no matter what. All right, there are 47% who are with him, who are dependent upon government, who believe that, that they are victims, who believe that government has a responsibility to care for them, who believe that they are entitled to health care, to food, to housing, to you name it. But that's it's an entitlement, and government should give it to them. And they will vote for this president no matter what. Now, that video led to a lot of backlash against uh, presidential candidate Mitt Romney. And uh, the Trump administration clearly had that in their back pocket to use for when Romney got out of line. And to be sure, Romney was one of the few Republicans who was willing to criticize Trump. And one of the times he did that led to this from Kayleigh McEnany. People across the country recognize that while Mitt Romney has a lot of words, notably he said that 47 percent of the nation is dependent upon government, believes they are victims, believes that the government has a responsibility to care for them. Those were Mitt Romney's words not too long ago. The president takes great offense to those words. The important takeaway here is that People in this country have been suffering from the rigged economic system. They've been suffering from growing inequality. They've been suffering from their jobs being shipped abroad. It's been difficult. And the only messaging that the American people have gotten, workers have gotten from government, has been to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's not the system's fault. It's your fault. Trump realized how sick people were of hearing that. And he decided to exploit uh, the absolute frustration that people are feeling in order to further his own political ambitions. Now, it's worth talking about the politics of personal responsibility. Personal responsibility in the American political context is all about shifting the blame of failing systems onto the people. There was a great discussion about this during a segment um, on The Jacobin Show. I want to share a piece of that with you because it just gives you some of the details you need to kind of understand what's been going on in this country. Take a look. So over the last generation, there's been this massive shift of economic risk from the broad shoulders of government and corporations onto the fragile backs of American families. And the, the result is that Americans are more and more worried about the American dream, about the idea that if you work hard, you'll be able to get ahead. It's not that the U.S. doesn't spend on benefits. If you combine public benefit systems with these mini welfare employee employer funded benefit systems, we spend as much as other rich nations like Sweden on a similar package of benefits, but with very, very different results. The degradation of these mini welfare states is what Jacob Hacker has termed the great risk shift. Rather than companies or the state shouldering the burden of risk, risk has been privatized with individuals and families having to personally manage and mitigate economic crises with no safety net. 
And every American is familiar with the disastrous results. Ariel is absolutely right about that. And uh, we do see it play out everywhere in politics. In fact, uh, I have a recent example featuring a Republican senator, Roger Marshall, who recently argued that workers don't need a federal $15 an hour minimum wage because, you know, I mean, when he went to college like a million years ago, he was able to work part time with a minimum wage job and do amazing things. Watch. I worked with about 15 other high school classmates through high school and junior college with a great part-time job, and it, and it was a, a great supplement to my income and helped me not have any debt when I finished college as well. In other words, if you're drowning in student loan debt and if you're not making enough money, that's your fault. That's your fault. Don't expect the government or the very people you voted for to represent you to come to your rescue, uh, there's something wrong with you and you need to take personal responsibility. Now, it's worth noting that, um, you know, some of the numbers are different today compared to when uh, the senator went to college. And I want to share those numbers with you right now. Um, it was in a tweet by Timothy Burke who pointed out that Roger Marshall's argument for not raising the minimum wage is that he had a minimum wage job and it paid for his entire college tuition. When he graduated from Kansas State University, tuition was $898 a year. It's now $10,000 a year. The minimum wage then was $3.35. It's now $7.25 and has been, by the way, since 2009. The federal government hasn't increased the federal minimum wage for years, since 2009. And so um, the more important takeaway, though, is that public colleges used to be free in this country. I know people think that it's a radical idea to ensure that public colleges uh, become free, but it's not radical when you consider that at one point in this country, they were free. So the shift uh, of risk was placed onto uh, working people. Uh, the government decided that they would no longer uh, subsidize these public uh, colleges and universities the way that they used to, and that led to um, rapidly increasing tuition prices, even in these state colleges. Now, Democrats are guilty of engaging in the personal responsibility nonsense as well. For example, in response to climate change, uh, liberal politicians would rather ban plastic bags or the use of plastic spoons than uh, ban fracking, for instance. And who can forget President Joe Biden's tough love statements to financially anxious millennials. The younger generation now tells me how tough things are. Give me a break. No, no. I have no empathy for it. Give me a break. Because here's the deal, guys. We decided we were going to change the world. And we did. We did. We finished the civil rights movement to the first stage. The women's movement came to the beam. So my message is, get involved. There's no place to hide. You can go out and you can make all the money in the world. And what we're seeing in government today and what we've been seeing in government for decades is uh, reflected in corporate culture as well. In the 1980s and 1990s, companies began to adopt a positive spin on personal responsibility, you know, like motivation, getting that grind on, making sure you hustle. You know, we've heard a lot of this lingo um, in mass media. And American workers were losing their jobs as this positive spin was really starting to develop. They were losing their jobs in mass numbers. And companies were shipping 
all sorts of jobs abroad in order to exploit cheap labor. Now, uh, Keep in mind that the uh, casualties of, you know, free trade agreements and dwindling bargaining power uh, were just told to suck it up. And if they were complaining, that ended up uh, hurting them uh, in, in being able to find another job. They were just told that they were being whiners, that they weren't taking per- personal responsibility. And one of the best books to to really dig into that issue is Bright Sided uh, by Barbara Ehrenreich, um, which also noted this, that between 1981 and 2003, about 30 million full-time American workers lost their jobs in corporate downsizing. American institutions, corporate and governmental, had little of concrete value to offer victims of this massive social dislocation. Unemployment benefits generally run out after six months. Health insurance ceases with employment. Many of the downsized white-collar workers bounced back, finding new jobs, although paying an average of 17% less than their former salaries. Ehrenreich realized that corporations increasingly turned to motivational coaches and this culture of toxic positivity uh, to convince workers that if they just take personal responsibility, if they change their attitude, stop complaining and improve themselves, they can live the American dream and enjoy economic stability. Is the change in the corporate culture in uh, the last 15 or so years as this positive thinking took over and began to replace more logical, analytical approaches to things focused on the bottom line. And the, uh, the idea had taken hold that we can do no wrong. Housing prices can never go down. The stock market can never go down. I, I did interview and got a lot of motivational speakers, and these are, you know, these are people who, their primary clients are corporate. Uh, they're brought into sales meetings, but also to any kind of general corporate meeting. And the message is again and again, you can have whatever you want so long as you focus your thoughts on it. You know, as long as you really, really, really want it. And... I think that's nuts, frankly. I mean, uh, that's not how we make change in the world. You know, we make change by planning, by thinking, and by coming together. By planning, by thinking, by coming together, which is why we emphasize the need of strong labor and unions in America. Because without that, there's really no way to apply the necessary pressure to ensure that this culture changes, to ensure that the system changes, to ensure that uh, we're able to make decisions collectively about the kind of society we want to live in, uh, about the type of work environments we want to work in. And unfortunately, we don't have that right now. We used to, and there was a time in America where politicians did feel pressure to listen to organized labor. But now we find ourselves in these toxic work environments. We see the gap in inequality growing every year, more and more. Uh, Every time there's some sort of disaster, including the coronavirus pandemic, uh, we see uh, inequality growing rapidly and the wealthier accumulating more and more wealth for themselves, while uh, the working class sees less and less of the wealth that they're building for these companies, that they're generating for these companies. And so 
Erin Wright continues in her book, without a safety net, formerly middle-class people often tumbled quickly into low-wage jobs and even destitution. The once stable middle-class of white-collar workers who had been brought up to believe that their skills and education would guarantee security was reduced to anxious scrambling. And that anxious scrambling continues. We're seeing it today. Uh, when the government, influenced by corporate interests, spends decades pushing for personal responsibility over things that unorganized workers actually have no control over, don't expect Washington to come to the, come to your rescue. They're not. We're seeing that play out right now with the coronavirus relief bill. They might force businesses to shut down, uh, and they might issue stay-at-home orders. But in the end, as millions of Americans get laid off, Democrats right now currently debate amongst themselves over whether or not they're willing to offer you a one-time coronavirus relief check. And Trump demonstrated how unpopular that is among voters. He showed that the messaging of personal responsibility is not an easy one to convince the American people of anymore. They've heard it for decades. Uh, they've experienced how it's pretty much complete and utter BS. And the only one who miraculously was smart enough to catch on to that happened to be Donald Trump, someone who's incredibly moronic in so many different areas. But when it comes to marketing, when it comes to understanding what fuels people, what what drives people, he seems to have a better grip than the Democratic Party does. And there is a lot of pain and suffering to come for the Democratic Party if they continue regurgitating this line of personal responsibility, even as Americans deal with the absolute economic destruction of a rigged system that favors the rich uh, and brutalizes the poor. You know, your segment in watching Barbara Ehrenreich, who I deeply admire, is one of one of our best. Um, it reminded me of I, I've been watching the Adam Curtis documentary series called Can't Get You Out of My Head, which just came out. And it's all about this. It's all about the the age of the individual, which is what we live in. Right. And it was, you know, used to be um, the age of the collective and mass politics and, and, and starting at some point in the middle of the 20th century that changed into the age of the, of the individual, which is what we're living in now, um, which has been coupled by so many things. I mean, like what you mentioned, these corporate um, initiatives to tell people that if they just, you know, if they just kind of do some little bit more self-improvement, they're going to they're gonna inherit the earth. Um, but what that's done is created a sense of anxiety in all of us because, right, like, you know, if we just kind of did one more thing, if we just worked out a little harder, if we just read one more book, if we just meditated more, if we just whatever, all these things, like if we just did a little bit more of all those things, we would be successful and we would be and, – and it just creates this sense of like anxiety that there is no – Oh, totally. There, that, that you're the only person who is in charge of your own fate. I mean every like Instagram girl has like uh, you know a meme on their page that's like – do whatever you want. It's all about you. Just if you just focus on yourself, like you don't have to listen. So it's, it's a hyper individual um, kind of mindset, which has become hegemonic. And it really what it does is just makes us all anxious because, um, you know, Adam Curtis talks about, says a, a line that kind of resonated with me is that like going out into the woods at night with your friends is, can be exhilarating and thrilling. Going out into the woods at night by yourself is scary. And I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, that's a good, um, that's a good analogy. So, but we're not going to, we're not like, you know, 
we're, we're not going to go back. To, we can't like put individualism away. Um, we just have to create something new, some new form of like harnessing this individualism through to uh, some sort of collective thing. And it's going to be new, which is hard, which is why it's hard for us to imagine it. But um, yeah, that was that was great. I mean, I very much enjoyed that segment. And Thank also you. just a really, really small comment. Uh, you know, hearing Trump's voice, like it, it, I hadn't heard it in so long. Like I hadn't heard, I hadn't seen or heard Trump speak in so long. I had forgotten. It was just like a weird kind of like, whoa, uh, you know, he was so present in our lives for years and now he's I know, gone. It's crazy. Yeah. It was weird to hear his yeah. voice again. The only other thing I'll say, and then um, I want to bring our guest on, um, you know, cause he's been waiting. Uh, I, I, writing this segment made me realize what it is that I hate so much about the endless pressure to have a personal brand. Yeah. Like I, I hate those conversations. I hate like the question, what's your brand is gross and it should be irrelevant, but all of us has become our own little like marketing units, right? Like, we, like you not only have to be skilled and educated and like what just to get a, a decently paying job in this economy, but you also have to go out of your way to advertise yourself and yeah. every day publicly on social media. You gotta you gotta share pictures of your personal life. You gotta tweet on a regular basis. Like, it's. And it's so crazy because you're sharing so much of yourself out into the world, like publicly, but it's also very isolating, as you mentioned. You you feel like that person going into the woods alone. Um, and you know, everything you do has to be thought of as like an investment in your in your earning power. Yeah. It's just it's it's gross. I hate all of it. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's move on because we uh, we want to give you guys some updates on uh, Cuomo and we have a wonderful guest here to help us discuss. Um, so, Ross, I wanted to uh, bring you in. Ross Barkin is a columnist for The Guardian and Jacobin, as well as a contributor for The Village Voice and The Nation. And also he has a new book, Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus and the Fall of mm. New York. It's now available for pre-order from OR Books. Uh, thank you so much for I joining us, I see what you did there it. with that title in that cover art. I see what you did there. That's very clever. I, I did not. I, I I don't have any artistic skills, so I cannot take credit for the cover. But it's a great cover, and I'm very very happy with it. Nice. So Cuomo has been in the news quite a bit. Um, you know, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of the focus on what he did in covering up mass deaths uh, during the coronavirus pandemic has gotten less attention, um, while the allegations of sexual harassment have gotten far more attention. Not saying that that's not imp- an important story to cover, but I, I actually want to start off with his decisions and his leadership uh, during this pandemic, because the media would have you believe that he was fantastic. He was great, mm-hmm. um, but he made a whole host of terrible decisions. And uh, the vaccine rollout was also pretty shaky in New York as well. So can we start with that? Yes. Yeah, so the current narrative of Cuomo is he's had this tremendous downfall from this peak of, of success and accomplishment. And there was a peak of popularity, but he was never successful in terms of taming the pandemic. So from the very beginning, New York was very slow to react. Andrew Cuomo actually dismissed the idea of a shelter in place order for New York City after California, San Francisco, 
and the surrounding counties in particular have already done it. He was comparing coronavirus to the flu as recently as March 11th of 2020. And this, at, by this point, we all knew what COVID was. And he repeatedly downplayed it throughout February and March, said it was like Ebola, it was like SARS, it wasn't as bad as those, and that the fear itself was worse than the virus. So a lot of this early failure of Cuomo has really been lost in the shuffle of all the current scandals. And, and I feel like it's very important we remember almost 50,000 people have died of coronavirus in New York State. It has the second highest death toll, the second highest death rate. The only death rate higher is New Jersey. And New Jersey's death rate very much um, is, is a d derivative uh, from New York because New York City wasn't at the same. Um, so it's just very important to remember at no time was Cuomo successful in terms of containing COVID-19 or saving people's lives. It was an utter disaster, a humanitarian catastrophe, the worst cataclysm to hit New York ever, and I include 9-11, because far more people died from COVID here in New York than 9-11. And, you know, us on the left have long hated Cuomo. This is not nothing new for us. Um, Cuomo has been primary twice before from the left, uh, Zephyr Teachout and, and, and Cynthia Nixon. Um, we have always hated Cuomo. We always knew that this was the way he acted. Um, and but I think for a lot of people kind of in the broad in, in the rest of America, like this is kind of like the first taste they're getting of Cuomo's monstrosity. I mean, literally rewriting reports to lie about the number of people who, who, who died in his state. Um, what are some of Cuomo's kind of greatest hits uh, from before this pandemic? Like, you know, why, why did we on the left hate him long before coronavirus existed? I, I always say the original sin of Cuomo, and, and this is very important for the liberal Democrats watching, those who believe in the resistance, who, who have, uh, you know, hashtags in their Twitter profiles and, and the blue wave people, the people who really think mm. Cuomo has done a tremendous job. I always remind them, Andrew Cuomo literally fought to keep Republicans in control of the New York State Senate for almost his entire tenure as governor. So New York is a pretty blue state. We have not voted for a Republican presidential candidate since Ronald Reagan's reelection in 1984. Yet we had a Republican controlled state Senate um, from 2011 through 2018. So um, you're, you're talking about a, a, a long time. And, and that was because Andrew Cuomo won allowed Republicans to gerrymander their own districts in the state Senate. That was the, that was one original sin. And the second thing that happened was Democrats won enough seats after the 2012 election to take control of the state Senate, push Republicans into the minority. And Andrew Cuomo helped a rogue group of Democrats called the Independent Democratic Conference form a unprecedented coalition government with the Senate Republicans. And together, this coalition government of Senate Republicans and breakaway Democrats, the IDC, controlled the state Senate from uh, 2013 through 18. And then the IDC was primaried out of existence by progressive challengers. No, no, no help uh, from Cuomo on that. So Andrew Cuomo is someone who has consistently undermined Democrats in his own state. He's undermined progressive Democrats. 
he's undermined moderates too. You know, you don't have to be a leftist to understand that Andrew Cuomo was committed to empowering Trump Republicans in the state of New York. And if he had his way, Republicans would still control the state Senate. And people watching may ask, well, why? Why would a Democratic governor want a Republican state Senate? Well, let's remember Andrew Cuomo is at best fiscally centrist. You could say he's fiscally conservative. He's someone who has been of the austerity mindset since he took office. And having a Republican Senate was a great excuse to kill progressive policy, whether it was stronger tenant laws, whether uh, it was protections for immigrants, you know, whether um, it was universal health care in New York State. Um, you, know, you go down the list of these progressive policy demands, criminal justice reforms, another big one. Um, anytime someone on the left could say, hey, we want these things, Cuomo could throw up his hands and say, well, I support them. I'm sorry, the state Senate does not. These bills are not going anywhere. And this was triangulation that he learned from one of his original mentors, Bill Clinton. Cuomo, mm. of course, was a HUD secretary, HUD secretary under Bill Clinton. And if you read his um, first memoir, which came out back in 2014, you really see he's someone who is in thrall of Clintonian democratic politics, of tacking to the right to neutralize the left. This is something that is very endemic to who he is. So you mentioned austerity, and uh, one of the more jarring examples was what Cuomo was doing early on in the pandemic in cutting the state's Medicaid funding. Uh, so while he's simultaneously doing these coronavirus press briefings and you know regurgitating statistics and really making himself out to be someone who takes it seriously, behind the scenes he was cutting literally billions of dollars from the state's Medicaid program, which you know is obviously counterproductive as. Uh, Americans were losing their jobs, uh, getting laid off, and then also losing their employer-provided health insurance that came along with that. Um, there was very little attention to that. Uh, as he was doing that, he was getting all of the positive uh, news coverage. And I know that this question asks you to speculate, um, but I, I want to understand what you think uh, was behind that. Um, was it because of Donald Trump being such a monstrosity on a daily basis in response to the pandemic that helped to make Cuomo look good? Or do you think that, you know, corporate media is just kind of in on this whole austerity um, austerity take and they just didn't want to attack him for it? Or maybe both? I, I, I think it was Donald Trump because what you're seeing now is Cuomo is at the center of two different scandals that are getting a tremendous amount of attention in corporate media. So um, the nursing home scandal and then the sexual harassment allegations. I truly believe if these allegations had come to light five months ago, they would have gotten no oxygen. You would have had members of the media, you were saying, well, Donald Trump is worse. Donald Trump sexually harassed people too. Oh, Donald Trump is corrupt. Why do we care about Andrew Cuomo? Donald Trump this, Donald Trump that. The, the, the beginning of the pandemic was it was a very scary time for a lot of people. Um, and and it, it was also a time which I think we'll look in, in retrospect with a, quite a bit of, of curiosity and, and confusion. You know, I, I really think you had a lot of people who are stuck in their homes. You had members of the media who were hunting for a good narrative. You had a void to fill. And Donald Trump was such a catastrophe. There, there was this desperation on the part of, of many pundits and people in the media to find a foil, right? If someone is bad, 
someone else must be good. And I, I wrote critically about this in a column recently that there's this desire of reporters to act like novelists and craft narratives. I love novels and I love fiction, but I'm also a journalist and I don't believe these principles should apply to journalism. Now, couldn't they have found a different foil? There were governors who handled the pandemic well. Jay Inslee in Washington State was one. Phil Scott, a, a moderate Republican Vermont, um, did a pretty good job. Vermont has a very low death rate. There, there are governors you could have found. The issue was Cuomo was in New York City. He was doing these press briefings every day. And there was this void that was really filled by Cuomo misinformation. I don't want to sound like, you know, um, you know, an MSNBC pundit you know, abusing that word. But, you know, Cuomo himself did spout misinformation. You know, he was creating a, a lie that he was containing the pandemic, that there was nothing New York could do. It was all Donald Trump's fault. Um, and th that was not the case. There were steps New York uh, could have taken to um, at least have less people die. Um, so I, I do believe that it was the fact that Donald Trump was president. I do think Donald Trump let a lot of Democrats off the hook because local failure, local incompetence, local catastrophe could be explained away by the, the, the simple two words, Donald Trump. Why is this bad? Well, Trump is bad, right? And we just saw this again and again. Thankfully, Donald Trump is gone. Andrew Cuomo has no cover any longer. Can you, can you um, outline a little bit, um, in case someone hasn't been following kind of the, the drip drip of the news cycle, what the what the cover-up is like what is the scandal what what did he do um sure. like, why is everyone so, talking so arms the, about so the the nursing home scandal is interesting um i, I actually don't don't personally think it, it's the worst aspect of, of cuomo's pandemic response i really think it was those initial weeks where he downplayed the virus and people died what happened was new york made this very unusual and intentional decision to hide or miscount the number of people who died in nursing homes in almost every other state that counted nursing home deaths, they counted residents of nursing homes who got sick and died. It didn't matter if they were residents of a nursing home and they died in a hospital, that was in the nursing home death tally. What Andrew Cuomo's health department did is he did not count nursing home residents who got sick and died, who happened to die in hospitals. And if you think about it, it's completely nonsensical. You have, you know, let's say you worked in a nursing home, there's a resident there who's sick with COVID. You need to get them to a hospital. They're very ill. You call for an ambulance. You have them transferred. Two days later, they tragically die in a nursing home. Well, sorry, tragically die in a hospital. They've been transferred, right? Why wouldn't they be, be counted? So it started there with this very strange accounting of who died in nursing homes. So for many months, um, journalists, politicians, advocates were asking, what is the true nursing home death tally? What is going on? The Cuomo administration would not reveal the number. We all believed it was much higher than the stated number. I think it was 6,000 in the summer of 2020. My personal guess was it had to be double. It just didn't make sense. 40,000 people dead in New York, right? So what happened was the Attorney General of New York State, Letitia James, put out a report back in January that said what we all suspected that New York was undercounting nursing home deaths probably by 50%. And then that number magically by the Department of Health got revised to be more than 50% higher. The next part of the scandal, so follow along here, 
Melissa DeRosa, who is Cuomo's top aide, you know, probably the second most powerful person in New York State, told uh, state legislators the reason she didn't give over the real nursing home data um, back in the summer of 2020 was she feared a investigation from Donald Trump's Department of Justice. And apparently there was a probe. It didn't really go anywhere. So that was kind of the initial burst of scandal, that they had real numbers and that they hid them. There actually was a, was a report in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal just about a day or two ago that went even further and said that they had the proper nursing home count even before they feared this probe. What is becoming apparent, and this is not like 100%, but this is my strong hunch and a, and a lot of, a lot of uh, suspicions of people who cover this stuff, that Andrew Cuomo was pushing the nursing home death, death uh, tally down intentionally because he was writing a memoir about the pandemic and he thought it would reflect badly. <laughs> and he was intentionally pushing this number down probably to juice his book sales. It looks like, uh, you know, the, the, the more we get through this. So, you know, you're really talking about um, a cover up, right? Had he just been honest and given a proper nursing home death tally from the beginning, you would not have this scandal at all. Kind of reminds me of Watergate where, where the cover-up really created another scandal, but it really speaks to Cuomo's management approach. You know, he's someone who's always governed in secrecy. He's someone who's always lacked transparency. He's someone who's always been extremely arrogant and extremely obsessed with his image. So none of this really surprises me. And now there is a current FBI probe into Cuomo's handling nursing homes. So you have the sexual harassment allegations and you have an FBI probe into his handling of nursing homes two concurrent scandals into into his administration as we speak. So let's uh, talk about the sexual harassment allegations against him. Um, and that really led to an explosion of negative news coverage. Uh, first, it began with one former staffer who uh, said that he had asked her all sorts of inappropriate questions and made her uncomfortable and also uh, kissed her without her consent. Uh, and keep in mind, this is a staffer of his. So there's a, an issue with the power dynamic there. Then we heard from a second staffer uh, who made similar allegations, although uh, the second staffer did not say anything about um, being touched. Uh, but it, the line of questioning uh, coming from Cuomo was highly inappropriate, asked her questions about if she would have sex with uh, older men, made it clear mm-hmm. that the older man that he was talking about was himself. Uh, asked about her history with, you know, sexual abuse. I mean, just awful, awful stuff. And then we also learned about a woman uh, at a wedding that he attended uh, who, you know, he touched the small of her back and then proceeded to ask her inappropriate questions. Um, and then uh, she also provided a picture of him awkwardly putting his hands on her face. Um, so, you know, all of this stuff is coming out. And and one thing that's been very clear through all of these allegations is that he seems to feel that he's untouchable, right? He seems to think that he can engage in these conversations and and not ever have to face any consequences for them. He re- released a statement saying that he never inappropriately touched any of them, although I would argue kissing someone against their will and without consent is inappropriate touching. But as a boss, as someone who's like basically the staffer's um, employer here, uh, just the types of conversations that he would engage in were obviously inappropriate. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on these allegations and 
whether this is going to lead to any consequences for him. Sure. So the allegations are pretty credible. You, know, you, you have two former staffers. You have a third woman who's not a staffer, but there is a photograph of Cuomo grabbing her by her face um, to kiss her where she looks, quite frankly, terrified. Um, so I do believe, you know, these will uh, bring <clears throat> consequences for Andrew Cuomo. He's politically damaged. His poll numbers are going down. I talked to a lot of people in New York state government, politicians, labor leaders. They feel Cuomo is imperiled. The question really is what comes next, right? What you're hearing from a lot of Democrats with power in the state, particularly the leaders in the state legislature, is another allegation could really spell um, the end for Cuomo. And the end means impeachment. The end means powerful people in the state calling for him to step down. Right now, the resignation calls have been isolated. You have some progressives. You, you had one congresswoman, Kathleen Rice, call for it. But generally speaking, a lot of Democrats are waiting and seeing. Cuomo has said, wait for the attorney general to put out her report on the allegations and, and let the facts, um, you know, tell us the truth. Right. So due process is is an important thing. And so a lot of, of people in politics are waiting for that attorney general's report. So she's probing the allegation. It's probably going to take a month or two. The, the, the general feeling, at least um, I would say my own sense, is he's going to have a very hard time running successfully for re-election. If you asked me a few weeks ago, I would have said he's a shoe in for re-election. If he's someone who's he's been governor for almost 12 years now, um, he'll be entering he's in his 11th year now. Um, he can raise inordinate amounts of money because New York has awful campaign finance laws, thanks in part to Andrew Cuomo. Um, <laughs> so he was always a very strong uh, incumbent. But these allegations have weakened him. If there are no more allegations and the report in some way exonerates him, he will get off um, and be able to survive, kind of like Ralph Northam weathered his, his blackface scandal a few years ago. But another allegation could damage him severely. And if the report is really um, as devastating as many people think it will be, that will also damage him a lot. So for the first time in his decade in office, he's weakened. And this is someone who's seen as close aide go to prison, Joe Prococo, um, in a bribery scandal. You know, this is someone who has been besieged by scandal before, but it never really penetrated his popularity, and he never lost the support of his donors, of labor leaders, of um, elected officials. This does feel different. Now, what happens next is anyone's guess. It's hard to see him resigning because he's someone who will fight to the death to maintain his power. Power for him is like oxygen for us. So it's hard for me to see it yet, but I do think it's much more possible than it ever was before. And I do think he will be damaged seeking a fourth term if he chooses to do that. Um, really quickly, Ross, before we let you go, I just want to ask you about the New York City mayoral race. Um, I don't know much about it, to be honest. I know de Blasio uh, ran as a progressive when he first won, has disappointed basically everyone. Um, and the only thing I'm seeing from the mayoral race is Andrew Yang being the most epic dude ever. 
Um, <laughs> what's going on? Who, what's what's the state of play? What do you what? How do you read the mayoral race? What's like? Who's the who's the favorite? What's going to happen? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's it's a pretty interesting race. And you know, the primary is going to be in June, so it's coming up really quickly. And there hasn't been a lot of attention paid to it. There's probably four or five Democrats that have a real shot um, at winning. And, and of course, New York City is overwhelmingly Democratic. So if you win the June primary, you're going to be mayor. It's pretty much a lot. So Andrew Yang right now, I would say, is a front runner. He has a very good shot at, at becoming mayor. His campaign has encountered um, some degree of resistance in progressive circles. He's been criticized for um, leaving the city early on in the pandemic and making some weird <laughs> Twitter faux pas that I don't really think are a big deal. Some people do. Um, but, you know, he is someone who definitely has gotten a lot of attention and is at the front of the pack. There's the Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, who's popular in the African-American community. He has a good shot at, at, um, at winning the nomination. And um, there's Scott Stringer, the city controller. He's been courting progressives. Jamal Bowman endorsed Scott Stringer among you know some some others and then there's maya wiley who is de blasio's counsel and she got pretty well known being an, an msnbc a legal analyst and so she has a bit of a following and then finally there, there's a a wealthy um a, a wealthy um person from sort of the, the, the banking business community ray mcguire though he hasn't gotten a lot of traction so i would say the race is probably going to come down to one of four candidates um, and it's looking like, you know, Yang or Adams or Stringer or maybe Maya Wiley has a shot. The big issues being discussed, I mean, pandemic recovery is at the top of everyone's minds. New York City was incredibly hard, hard hit, as we all know. We have lost many jobs in the re in the um, restaurant sector, in the hospitality sector, um, arts jobs. Broadway has been closed. There are severe economic challenges facing the state. Many progressives are calling for taxes in the rich to generate more revenue, which is something some of the candidates support. So that that is that is sort of the state of play right now. But it's definitely been a sleepier race. And I think now the Cuomo scandal has overshadowed it. Wow. Um, look forward to the Yang gang getting everything they've always wanted um, with their guy uh, <laughs> running they, New York they, City. They, they, they wanted this like four months ago, but right. they'll take it. Um, Ross, thank you so much for joining us and explaining all of the intricacies of New York politics. Anne and I, we're here on the West Coast, California. New York, man, you guys are just the Eastern coastal elites. We don't know anything about that. So thanks for enlightening, enlightening us. No problems. Good, good to come on. Thank you, Ross. Appreciate it. All right, Anna, should we go to our next guest? We're two guests in it. one show. Crazy. It's time to bring on Jim Williams. Jim is the vice president and director of organizing for the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. He, that union is at the forefront of the PRO Act, which I discussed last week in my Decode segment. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. So can, can you explain what the PRO Act is and how you guys got involved in that piece of legislation from the very beginning? Sure. Yeah, you know, the PRO Act is the first piece of legislation to, to really tackle some of our broken labor laws in this country um, since really the passage of the National Labor Relations Act. 
Um, the PRO Act seeks to like modernize and update the process by which workers can collectively bargain. Um, you know, years and years of bad, bad labor laws and labor decisions by the NLRB. Um, it really it really is what's needed to fix what in this country is broken. Um, we do a lot of work with with labor unions across the globe. And, you know, when we talk to labor leaders from over in Europe and other places, they're just shocked at how difficult it is for workers here um, to, to attain collective bargaining in their industries across the board. Um, and the PRO Act really is the, the thing that will fix what's, what's broken in this country. I mean, the employers have had the advantage um, for over 70 years. Um, when, the, when the National Labor Relations Act was passed in 1935, it was passed uh, to create a process by which workers would have easier access to collective bargaining. And over the generations, they've made it so much harder. Um, the election processes that we're currently seeing now, like even the workers in Bessemer, Alabama, that are going through an organizing drive um, with Amazon, the things that management is allowed to do um, to dissuade workers from um, collectively bargaining and, and joining a union is, is it, it really shouldn't happen in a country as developed as the United States. Um, so, so the PRO Act, um, you know, passed the House last year, but our union, we, we made it the number one priority of our legislative agenda um, because we know it's, it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to get through the Senate. Uh, labor unions themselves cannot get this bill passed on its own. There has to be a real movement amongst workers in general, specifically workers that are not a member of a union right now, but want to. Um, and, and the PRO Act, you know, is going to be it's going to be a campaign that may take some time. Um, the National Labor Relations Act didn't happen in 1935 overnight because unions wanted it to happen. It happened because there was a movement amongst workers. You're right about that. And, you know, a theme that comes up quite a bit on this show is the lack of labor power in this country relative to before, you know. And so the question is, you know, what what kind of strategy, given weakened labor in this country, thanks to things like the Taft-Hartley Act and all of that, what is the strategy for your, um, you know, for your union? And I know you're working with other unions to try to apply pressure and get this passed in the Senate. Are you guys thinking about that? And, and what exactly do you think could happen if you implement the strategy? So I, I think strategically after the elections, um, obviously it was, it, it was going to be important that we weighed in down in Georgia. Um, and the two Senate um, folks that won in Georgia have already pledged their support for the PRO Act. Um, I think we, we all knew that had we not gained um, – a Democratic majority leader in Chuck Schumer that uh, there would be no way Mitch McConnell would put the PRO Act up for a vote um, if he was still majority leader. So we, I think we we got to a point where we know that uh, the Republicans are going to filibuster no matter what um, or are going to attempt to filibuster no matter what. We're going to have to put pressure, not only on Democrats that maybe haven't pledged their support yet, but on the Republican uh, senators in, in states where unions are strong. Um, it was great to get the, the support of both um, Warnock and Ossoff in a southern state like Georgia for the PRO Act. That was a huge step in the right direction. But we, we are calculating it's going to take uh, a real strong national debate and national movement for the PRO Act to get through. 
Um, we don't have to look that far into our history. The Employee Free Choice Act in 2009, it passed a, a Democratic-controlled House in 2008, passed again in 2009, and it was filibustered and never voted upon in the Senate. Um, and at that time, the majorities in uh, the Democratic majorities were even bigger. Um, it's going to require a real movement, a real coalition, um, targeted activity, uh, national pressure. Uh, the, the business community is going to spend millions and millions of dollars to push back. They already have, um, and they're going to continue to. So we calculated we, we really need a, a strong coalition, the same type of coalition that got the two senators elected in Georgia and the same work that Stacey Abrams has done over the years um, to, to engage working class voters in a different way. That's what it's going to take to push the PRO Act forward. You mentioned uh, the EFCA back in 2008, 2009, and, you know, the Democrats at the time um, had a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. Um, So I I guess I wanted to ask about your relationship to the Democratic Party. You mentioned that had the Democrats not won both the White House and the Senate in this one, you know, something like the PRO Act wouldn't even be anywhere near the agenda. But on the other hand, you know, the Democrats, won, when they did have the chance in 2008-9 to do something, they, they didn't. So this is something that is discussed a lot in the Jacobin world is like how, what is our relationship to the Democratic Party? I mean, we obviously, we can't become Republicans, but um, wh- wh- like, wh- how do you see that relationship working, I guess is my question. Yeah, it's like, it's like we, we all know that our relationships are the lesser of two evils, right? Um, I think what I think what we have to learn is that um, the Employee Free Choice Act should should serve as the template. Um, I remember I'm from Pennsylvania, and I remember at the time um, I think there was a 58 or 59 person majority uh, with the Democratic Party at the time. Arlen Specter was a United States senator, a Republican from um, the state of Pennsylvania, and. Arlen Specter uh, single-handedly kind of killed the bill and said he couldn't support it. Um, and he was a vote that was kind of considered a swing voter. And what was hilarious was within six months of that, um, he switched party affiliations to Democratic and received the support of labor unions back home in the state of Pennsylvania. It blew my mind um, that <laughs> one person could have single-handedly done that and then still received the support of the labor movement. We have to be very, very mindful of who we support and where we put our monies and efforts. Our union has chosen not to financially support or give any sort of um, grassroots support to any federal candidate that does not support the PRO Act from today into the future. That's how important it is for us. Um, often they can, often politicians can pick us apart by saying, hey, we're going to do a great infrastructure deal. Um, you know, hey, we're going to help, you know, pass relief for health care. All those things, they're scraps. We need labor law reform and we need it today. Um, And if the movement can come together and demand that of our politicians, it shouldn't matter what party they come from. Well, that leads me to, um, you know, I think the most important question, which is, you know, for everyone watching this right now, for everyone who uh, wants to take part in this fight and this effort, what can um, our viewers do to help support labor right now? Um, you know, many listeners agree that reviving the labor movement is important, um, but they don't really know how to get involved. Do you have any uh, recommendations for that? 
Yeah, and and you know, I think it it holds true that that a younger generation of workers want to be members of unions, and then educating them that it's almost impossible in certain industries because of our labor laws. Having those types of conversations with activists um, and with the progressive community uh, is so important. That's why we launched our campaign. Um, we have we have a website, PassTheProAct.org. We have a growing coalition of folks outside the labor movement. Um, there will be actions that can be taken online. There's going to be an event this Tuesday down in Washington, D.C., um, where we're going to be launching some of the efforts around our campaign. I, I personally believe it's going to be a couple years um, of a struggle for us to move the PRO Act across the finish line. Hopefully, maybe I'm wrong, but you can never prepare for something like that. So, you know, I would advise people get involved, um, join the pastoproact.org, sign up for alerts, sign up for updates, um, you know, engage locally with, with, with the labor movement and with the coalition that we're putting together. Um, because I, I, I think the time is right. You know, right now they say 67 to 68 percent of workers in this country have given the opportunity would form a union in their workplace. The sad part is nobody knows how to and doesn't really know the challenges uh, to actually achieving that. And by engaging in the proact uh, campaign and dialogue, I think more and more workers are going to see what it will take to form unions going into the into the future in different industries and different segments of, of the economy. Well, I think that's a that's a good place to leave it. Uh, Jimmy, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We'll be sure to have you back on to give us updates on, on your progress. You know, when I did my segment on the PRO Act last week, I did research to find cable news segments about it, and I found exactly zero. So yeah. uh, you can count on us uh, to cover it, and, and you'll always have a home here. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you. All right. All right. I, think, uh, I think everyone's ready for... For young Kale, the, the the main man, okay, the man, yeah. the the genius. This is why behind they sit the through all this show <laughs> just to get to Kale. I, I Where's know. Kale? Where's Kale? I don't know. No, you can say that after we just had two incredible guests. So just, we did have a carrot. Yeah, yeah. So just you know, little props, solidarity to to Jimmy and and those fighting for the the pro act, uh, and and again, thank you to to Ross for all the incredible uh, investigative research he does uh, and reporting. And we're very happy to publish a good chunk of it at Jacobin. So you should check that out. Um, okay, so we have some super chats uh, already. But if Great. you want us to answer some questions, uh, we're going to do that for the next couple of minutes. So send us some questions in the chat via the super chat function. Um, and there was a bunch of que- there was a bunch of super chats today that were just really. They weren't questions. They were just nice. <laughs> Some people were just like, thanks for your perspective. So I appreciate those. Um, Lee had written in uh, that Cuomo's sins began in 2011 when he wrung severe economic concessions from state unions, including no more defined contribution pensions, uh, despite <clears throat> despite no need. Um, so, you know, again, just the you can keep going further and further back into Cuomo's record. And it, it's it's all bad, all bad all the mm. way down. Um but I wanted to grab some of these other ones. Um, uh, actually, Lee had asked another question earlier, um, so I'm going to read that one. She says that uh, Shama Sawant is calling for mass demonstrations to push for 15 minimum wage. 
who calls the demonstrations? Right now, the unions, uh, it doesn't look like the unions are going to do it. Buttar calls the occupying legislators' offices with cameras uh, to the streets. Um, so uh, I guess the specific question of uh, Shama Sawant's call, but then maybe the more broader question of um, who calls demonstrations, if you want to weigh in on those. Oh. I, the majority of demonstrations or at least the, the big ones in the past have been somewhat spontaneous. I mean, there's been some organ like the women's March and things like that, but I don't know, man. I, I just, uh, the past four years have led me to have led me a little bit away from just, just pure demonstrations. I mean, what do we got to show for the George Floyd demonstrations? Like what do we got to show for it? Like literally nothing, like nothing essentially. Um, and that was, those were some of the biggest we've ever seen. Um, what do we, we got to show for? We did get a Black Lives Matter um, mural in front of the Trump Tower in New York. That's right. We got that. And we, we got, got Chuck that. Schumer kneeling in Kente Cloth. But, uh, there, was, there was some um, street names that were changed. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was there was a couple local police departments that uh, had their budgets cut. But obviously, yeah. like these are really, really tiny uh, wins in, in kind of... The broad, but the first, fact that we had massive the, the, the largest, demands. largest demonstrations right. in American history. Yeah, and we got yeah. a couple police departments here and there to like slightly cut their budget. Just, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know. The, 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 the that's just not. I just it just doesn't seem like devoid of these kind of big spectacles are helpful in especially creating international attention and things like that. But if they're not backed up by labor power, they're essentially meaningless. Um, so I, I don't know. I've just I've just kind of soured on that a little bit. Yeah, because labor power applies like can apply relentless pressure. Right. Like and, and also a strategy that's organized with people involved, something that actually challenges capital like that's that's really how you're going to get anything done at the end of the day. Yeah. Like it's just if there isn't it's I mean, anyway, I'll let it go. I was going to say something else. I'll let it go. Well, I think to the specific question about uh, Sawant, I mean, I think she's in a very good position to call for these kinds of things. I think that's some of the power that the left in government can do. Um, and I think that's something that we should try to encourage. Um, now, of course, you know, on the one hand, you know, a politician can say everyone to the streets now and, you know, it might people might come out and some people might not. I mean, it's it's a limited request, but it's important to do that kind of stuff um, that it's important to ultimately what we want to work towards is the left and government having uh, the muscle behind them, which are working people organized, whether it's in unions or whether it's it, whether it is the capacity to demonstrate to to protest. Um, and that the left and government needs that muscle, uh, basically when they're in negotiations up against forces far greater and far stronger than them to say, look, I might be, you know, be limited as just one or two or a handful of politicians right now, but I have an army behind me that could actually threaten the, the normal flow of things in society, especially the most important of which is the flow of profits that, um, this is the thing that, you know, the protests, unfortunately, this summer uh, just objectively were not able to do, that they did not challenge the flow of profits in society. Um, and, you know, again, that's 
I mean, the most egregious kind of aspect of this is the fact that you had corporations talking about uh, Juneteenth Absorbing and Black Lives Matter. Yeah. yeah. So, like, that's something that I think we on the left have to continue, you know, continue to think through of how do our actions actually challenge the centers of power and how do we challenge the flows of profit uh, through our demonstrations, through our protests, through our ultimately it's through strikes is kind of that's like the greatest weapon the left has truly. And um, and I think that's actually Lee was following up in another super chat where she was saying that she meant recognition strike wave. Um, and to that, I would just say, I mean, you know, the, we, I think on the left should do our best to encourage the most progressive aspects of, of the union movement and, and encourage them and say, we got your back. Uh, but at the same time, it's, there's just limitations that like, you know, the left kind of has to, you know, as much as we can nudge really, you know, the people who call the shots are the unions when they say we're going out on strike. And, and so you have to have those fights internally within the unions to convince the membership that uh, this is a risk worth taking. So it's tough. I mean, so I, I, that's kind of how I would put it. I, I'll go to the next question unless someone else wants to jump in. No, that's good. You got it. Um, okay. So uh, in a vacuum, the child allowance that just passed is an incredible win for the left. Should we celebrate that? Yes. I mean... The, the the coronavirus, the, the bill that just passed, the $1.9 trillion bill, I mean, just that number is so, like, it's just so much bigger than um, than we've seen in the longest, like, in such a long time. I mean, it, you compare that to the 2009 uh, stimulus bill, and it, 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 it like, dwarfs it. Um, so it, it is, like, this, this bill will do a lot of good things. Like, there's tons of good things in there that, that will happen. Um, that doesn't mean it's like, you have to be able to do, understand both things. Like this bill will help a lot of people. It will put money in people's pockets. It will boost the economy. Like we're going to see a, a, a better economic recovery than we would have, um, had they not passed the bill or had they passed something similar to what Obama passed in 2009. Um, there are, there are all manner of progressive things in there that are, that are good. And not to mention the vaccine rollout money, which like, my God, like let's, let's get this shit over with. Um, and so, but that does not mean that, that does not mean that we have to sort of take it lying down because there was all these things that could have been in there, um, that were promised in there and were not in there. And it wasn't because of Mitch McConnell and it wasn't because of the Republicans. It was because of the Democrats and it wasn't just Joe Manchin and it wasn't just, uh, share from Clueless. It was others, and it was the White House not knowing how to do politics on its own caucus. I mean, mm. you know, like there's the White there's House doing to... politics the way the the White House likes to do politics. I, right, like, like I, I want to stop. I, I think it's important to. I don't know. I, you guys might disagree with me on this, but I've moved past the thought that these Democrats, like they're just weak and they don't know what they're doing, and they're it's like one foible after the next. No, I think they know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly. Biden had that meeting with corporate executives, got that letter from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and immediately gave up immediately. It was intentional, 100 percent. And look, I think that's important because like when we treat them as if they're just they're simply incompetent, I think that it misses 
like where their loyalties really lie. You get what I'm saying? No, yeah, totally. It's it's both. It's it's obvious. It's 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 both, and they reinforce each other. And where one begins and the other ends is impossible to know the exact calculus. But it's it's absolutely both. It's there. You know, um, these things have a ha- have a habit of reflecting the incentives at play. You know, mm-hmm. and whether you know these people are doing it purposefully or not. Like some are, and some aren't, and some are just dumb, and some are some are cynical, and some are a combination of both of those things. Um, but there is a lot of, there, there, there is a lot of inertia I, I find with a lot of these Democrats. Like, I mean, Joe Manchin is a perfect example. Um, again, we've talked about this a lot. Like I, I get his, I get why he has to do or why he thinks he has to do certain things. I get the motivation behind it. Um, it's just that the one, the things that he does are the incorrect ones. And it's a lot of like assumptions about what the electorate is like, about how reactionary people are, um, it's just it. The, a lot of that stuff is just is pure kind of inertia that that carries them through. Um, but a lot of it is cynical and a lot of it is, um, you know, like all the commentators saying that saying that Kamala, Kamala Harris should overrule the parliamentarian that you're doing a sexism. That's just pure cynicism. That's just that's just. Yeah, of um, course. Yeah, there, it's a combination of both of those things, I would say. Okay, but I also want to add this because it's not just like, ooh, they met with their their donors and their donors uh, persuaded them to fight against the best interests of their own constituents. It's the fact that, like, we have laws that, like, allow members of Congress, including, yes, Joe Manchin, to own individual stocks, to own like almost majority shares in a company, right? Like he's a 50% owner in a private company in uh, West Virginia. Uh, and it's, it's a, I think it's like a hotel, a chain of hotels or something like that. But anyway, they pay their workers, you know, whatever the minimum wage is in the state of Virginia, which means that if they increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour, that hurts his bottom line. That hurts mm-hmm. his return on um, investment. And th- they have a, they literally have a vested interest to fight against the best interests of their constituents. Like, that's why I say that it's intentional, because when we say that it's just incompetence, it misses an opportunity to point to very specific financial interests that these lawmakers have that mm-hmm. go against what we need in this country. You know what I'm saying? So but yeah, I do agree that there is a mix of both. There's certainly idiots in Congress as well who don't know what they're doing. And then they're definitely corrupt. Well, and the idiot in the White House. I mean, come on, it's Joe Biden. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> he ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Well, I want to um, go to a different question. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you have to answer it in a Joe Biden impression, uh, which he, he he's the hardest voice to do an impression I can't do for. It. No I can't do I can it. Do I can do Alex Jones. I can do Trump. I can do... Uh, I can do a bunch of impressions. Joe Biden, it's, I, it's, it's, I can't do it. I just sound like a Southerner, but it's not quite that. It's right. something else. It's that weird it's Pennsylvania accent. Totally impossible impression. Um, but uh, there's a question uh, that came in a moment ago asking, we've known uh, there were issues in Cuomo's COVID response and for Cuomo in general. Do you think the media would have helped, would have helped Cuomo, uh, would have helped Cuomo be, um, accountable just because of the new COVID regu- revelations or was it the credible harassment allegations? Because what is doing the work um, right now? I think that the, 
the uh, harassment thing definitely has a, had a huge effect just because of like, you know, the media smells blood in the water when they, when they, when they see that, because it's, they've seen it happen in the past with other people. Um, and it's kind of had effect. Like the media wants to have an effect on stuff, even if it's, mm-hmm. it's like a weird incentive in that sense. And um, they, I think when, when they, when they start to see sexual harassment allegations, they smell blood in the water. Um, and corporate uh, media, cor- corporate media I, I don't know. My take based on various like independent contracting work and freelance work I've done for various corporate media outlets. My take is that they tend to think that their audience is stupid. Right. And no, so yeah, they hate, they hate their audience. They hate them. They, they think they're stupid. They, they yeah. Don't they don't think that their audience has any interest in or any understanding of yes. issues Seriously. like cutting funding to Medicaid, which is not it's not really difficult to understand. And, you know, it's insulting to their audience that these producers and corporate media don't think that, you know, people yeah. even care about this stuff. So but what they do know sells is anything sex scandal related. Um, and so that's what they latch onto, and that's what they'll cover incessantly. And I think that's part of the reason why uh, there's been more of a focus on the sexual harassment allegations as opposed to um, some of the awful things that he's done policy-wise or in regard to coronavirus in yeah. New York. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, another question. Uh, I don't have anything to add. That was good. <laughs> another question is, should the House Democrats block the COVID relief bill now that the 15 minimum wage is not in it? Or is it too risky since benefits expire on the 14th? Um, you know, I, I can see the arguments for both. I mean, I, I don't have a strong opinion on it. I know like David Sirota thinks they should. And I, I, genuinely, I generally trust his his instincts and his take uh, on that. I do, I do understand that like there is a huge amount of pressure to get the big massive bill done, get the vaccine rollout done, get, you know, money in people's pockets before the before the, um, uh, the the unemployment benefits run out in March. I mean, that's that's just the, the system of American politics is just like a series of guns to your head, you know, one right after the other, whether it's a uh, member of the debt ceiling shit uh, 10 years ago. And, you know, it's just so I understand, like when someone tells you, like you five people have to stand in the way of trillions of dollars being pumped into the economy like that can create a sense of vertigo <laughs> and uh, i can i can sympathize with that but i i also sympathize with the take that like at a certain point you got to stand you got to you got to be able to bring the whole thing down and you have to make the calculation that biden and mansion and all these ghouls um need this bill as much as you need it you know and that they need it for other reasons, mostly because of the, of the coronavirus, because the $50 billion or whatever in vaccine rollout is like the, the thing that's going to ensure all of their popularity. I mean, like, I think people are genuinely just tired of the lockdown and that, like, there is tremendous pressure on politicians to end the lockdown. And so the quicker they get that, you know, they, the, the less backlash they're going to face. Um, so... I I, uh, I I don't know. I mean, I, I I can't I can't come down hard in one way or the other. I just, but I do know that like at certain at a certain point, something like that has to happen. Okay. Well, I think the way that this has all played out so far um, is illustrative of what we can expect over the next four years, over the next two years, certainly. Um, so if anyone out there thinks that we're going to accomplish anything policy wise with this 
disgusting process. Just know that it's not going to happen. And and what was signaled by progressives in the House through this was, so far at least, and, and also through the words of Ro Khanna, who's done a number of interviews, we, we demand this, like we demand a $15 an hour minimum wage, uh, but in the end, we're going to vote for whatever we get, right? Like, and I think that's an issue yeah. in this particular context because you have two groups of people who are threatening to hold their vote, right? On one hand, you have the conservative Democrats like Manchin and, and Cinema, and uh, also uh, Harris, who's refusing to overrule the parliamentarian. So the... But focusing on the senators, you have the conservative senators, not Republicans, conservative Democrats saying we're not going to vote for this unless you strip it of the $15 an hour minimum wage. We disagree with it. And then in the House, you have a big enough progressive caucus that can also do the same thing, hold their vote. And yes, that's going to delay the passage of it. But they would hold the vote over something that's incredibly popular in this country. And so, I mean, it's a little bit of a game of chicken, right? And Conservative Democrats are down to engage in that game, whereas the progressives are refusing to even play the game. Yeah. And I think that's a problem. I think in this particular context, it's a problem. I, I, you're, you're totally right. I mean, the, the one caveat I will make is that the conservative Democrats have the power structure <laughs> supporting them, whereas the progressives do not. Right. They, they only have the idea that the you know, that this thing is popular and then the hope that the population will kind of, you know, support them in that standoff, which again, we've seen that in the past that it doesn't always translate exactly right. I mean, this is where labor power is what is the buttress that supports that kind of game of chicken. That's the only thing that's what's that's it's so it's not exactly like, you know, two gunslingers in the old West kind of standing one-on-one in front of each other. It's more like, a gunslinger standing up in front of like a group of gunslingers and like whether they want to do that. Stand- it's not, it's not a one-to-one thing because all those guys, again, the president, the, they, they have the power structure buttressing their position. Um, whereas the other ones do not because we just don't have that, that balance of power is skewed and it'll, it'll, it'll under like capitalism, blah, blah, blah. It'll never be one-to-one, but it'll be clo- It could be closer. Should it, mm-hmm. Were there a more powerful labor union? So, I, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to do like the, 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 you know, I'm done with these people. Like, I understand where, like, I understand why they're afraid to do it, you know? Um, I, I'm, and, and I'm not saying that they should, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't. I, I really, I really don't, I really don't know where I fall on that. I just, I, I do want to play devil's advocate that it is, that it is a little bit of a, you know, it's scarier than it, than it, than it probably I agree with you. I 100% agree with you on that. And it isn't one to one. Um, But if ever, with the absence of labor unions, there was an opportunity to at least try and see what the outcome is. I I think this is the time Um, I would I would want to at least experiment with this uh, when you know that it's over policies that Americans desperately want and need. Um, And and this is different from, you know, healthcare reform or any other issue, because Everyone knows what a $15 an hour minimum wage is. Everyone knows how it would impact people's lives. Everyone knows how many, you know, millions of Americans would be lifted out of poverty just by including that one provision in this relief bill. Um, so, you know, there's no complication over polling on this. Um, it's pretty straightforward. 
Um, but but you're look, I, I will say this. You're definitely right in that um, House progressives are terrified over being blamed for delaying the passage of the bill. Yeah. Um, it takes a little bit of courage to do this, this strategy, yeah. but here's the here's the sort of like kind of an extreme thing but you know we we talked about it a lot how in florida the 15 dollars minimum wage passed overwhelmingly um Mm -hmm. both florida's florida senators were republican were comfortable voting it down you know they're not afraid of the people power yet just because the voters you know supported it at the ballot box i don't think that they're terrified that they're now gonna blame like punish them at the polls for blocking the minimum wage. They're not, they're just not afraid of it. It's true. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, that is the, I mean, we, we talked last week about uh, Peter Mayer and, and kind of the, his, his idea of, of the void that, um, which again, I think it's a true idea. I think it's real that there's this, there's this great gap between both the electorate and the politicians, but then also this gap between what he, what he know like he's referring to as the gap between policy and politics of like the um the parties are all just kind of the same uh and political differences aren't really a factor as much as they were say half a century ago that that's not really why you know uh or how people are voting um because most people who don't vote also support basically like a welfare state they want medicare for all they want wages increase they want greater job security uh, they want childcare, all these things guaranteed by by federal programs. So, I mean, I think one good aspect that could come out of uh, either this particular bill or broadly, when we just think about like what is the left, what what is the general left orientation under the Biden administration? I think it will be to our benefit if we even even with these kind of paltry uh, wins that we're getting that the more that we can like make the case by people actually experiencing the government doing things for them that oh actually there is a role for public institutions uh i think that's it's an opportunity it's not necessarily to the left's benefit but the left can then and hopefully should in the years to come take these opportunities to say that's right we actually did do these certain things we did provide uh cash we did expand these programs they, we don't have to keep cutting endlessly. Uh, and now we actually need to take much bolder steps that the, the Democratic leadership is not willing to take right now. And where that takes us is is unknown, whether that means some kind of eventual fight for power within the Democratic Party, whether that means some kind of Labor Party. I don't know. I'm not making a prediction on that. I think that's the result of those kinds of fights. But those are the fights we want to, to say yeah, uh, you do deserve so much more. And liberalism and the Democratic Party is going to keep coming up short. Uh, so we're getting funny tweets. Sorry, <laughs> I, I just no, I just read I'm not reading funny tweets. I was looking at the super chats and champagne communista. Um, it's not it's an important question. Do you want me to read it? Yes. Yes, let's do it. Uh, what are y- what are y'all's feelings on wearing sunglasses indoors? This issue is dividing the left. <laughs> okay, I have very clear. I have a very clear answer on this. Uh, always wrong unless you're a black or b Jack Nicholson. Only people who are allowed to do it, in my opinion. Both of those answers are race science. That's <laughs> <laughs> or or if you're blind, 
I guess you can do it. If yeah, you yeah, good. You, you don't want to. Yeah. Okay, you went um, from race science to woke. Cool. Mm. Nice job. <laughs> um, I I'm not a big fan of sunglasses in general. Um, I wear them because I like obviously have to if they're if it's sunny out. But indoors, not a good idea unless you're trying to hide something, which I've done before. Just saying. Oh, okay. I think that's one of the reasons why people wear sunglasses indoors. I don't think it's a fashion statement or I could be wrong. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, a lot of like uh, a lot of musicians when they're performing live, like to do it because they don't know where to, where to like focus their eyesight when they're performing live, like on a specific person in the crowd or like just kind of generally. So they wear sunglasses. If you notice, if you look, if you kind of look through like performances and on like Letterman or whatever, um, but yeah, no, generally, no, not a good idea. I would say avoid it. I, I'm guessing part of the reason why they're asking is because I, throughout this conversation, have been like on and off glowing because I have a window in front of me and I can't control <laughs> the sunlight. So uh, this is. Oh, I thought that was a ring light. No, this is. Uh, this is God's Green Earth. March this 6th. Is the, the sun. And yeah. uh, late stage capitalism experiencing climate change. Mm hmm. That's us right now. Um, uh, okay, do you want to do maybe one more? One or yeah, let's let me do just, one more. Cool. Um, I do want to say actually, I'm really quick because there was one that came in earlier uh, about the Chicago teachers um, and mm -hmm. needing to know how to crowdfund. I just want to say that I last night watched for the first time uh, a movie called American Dream by Barbara Copel which everyone should watch and it's going to be leaving Criterion at the end of the month. So you should all those either with your Criterion accounts, watch it or get your friends that have them to give yeah. you the password. Um, DM me, I can give you a password, but mm. um, you should, it's a fascinating, incredible documentary about uh, the labor fight, the basically this, this fight between uh, the local P9, uh, uh, you know, slaughterhouse workers uh, against uh, Hormel, the uh, the giant uh, meatpacking company, and uh, it's it's heartbreaking. Uh, you know, I don't want to spoil the ending, but it's 1985 to 1986 for the labor movement, so you can maybe you can guess imagine. where it ends up. Yeah. Um, but it's it's interesting because uh, part of that that fight is that they actually did get an incredible amount of donations coming in from across the country, like while they were on strike for about five months. Despite the fact that the part of it, the international union did support them, uh, you know, with with money that they were giving them uh, weekly paychecks, basically. But um, you know, on the other hand, the international probably didn't support them enough. Um, although now I'm weighing in, um, but it's a great documentary, and you should watch that. I think like there is a there is good histories of uh, work, you know, ordinary people supporting union fights, and I think when we saw the teacher strikes, um, you know, this is, uh, that was an important part, you know, even uh, just recently uh, in New York with the Hunts Point Market, um, you know, what I think, I don't know, I don't want to say this is what brought them over the edge to win that fight, but it definitely helped having people in that, you know, all over New York, all over the country, sending in donations, sending in, you know, and also just manpower, just like having people on the picket line. So I just want to highlight that, that, um, there is an important history of that, uh, and you know it should only keep going on. That you know when you see a um, 
you know, a strike action, when you see labor fighting back, you should do your best to support it and certainly not ever cross the picket line. Um, but, um, okay, last thing. Um, someone was saying, um, they made an analogy uh, that I want to get your take on because they had asked or they had said that the Koch brothers is to the Tea Party as labor is to the progressive Democrats, that it's um, kind of a Gramscian phrase, a war of position in electoral politics. Uh, what do you make of that analogy? Um, is that, how, how, should, how should the left understand, I mean, this is maybe just picking right up where we left off with Jimmy about, uh, you know, what the relationship is with labor and the Democrats. It's not an analogy, it's not a correct analogy in that it's completely opposite in that the, the Koch brothers is a top-down thing, whereas labor power should be a bottom-up thing. Um, what it is true, it is it is like a, it is the the boulder on the other side of the seesaw, you know. Um, it's you know there's it's a seesaw, so it goes up and down, and when one is up, the other one's down, and you know labor is the is the counterweight to the power of the Koch brothers and things like that. It, they're not like the exact same thing. They are countervailing forces. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, I could go on, but I think that's, I think that's, yeah, that's right. Um, so all you guys close out. Thanks both Alrighty. for another massive, but awesome show. And, uh, massive. Yeah. And, uh, and next week we're going to have, uh, Danny Bessner on. So fun. Gonna, Let's make fun, fun of him. Yeah. 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 Send, <laughs> send him some, send some good, funny names to call Danny now. And yes. We'll, we'll read them on the show. Yes. Uh, all right. Bye, guys. Happy weekend. All right. Bye, Kale. Um, all right. Uh, thank you guys for watching. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this channel. Share this episode with friends and family. Uh, maybe it'll be a good uh, topic of discussion during a family dinner. Maybe you can talk about how you can help <laughs> uh, labor in this country. But uh, we really pre appreciate your support um, and love doing this show with you guys. Uh, Nando, any last words before we go? No, just really got to go to the bathroom. So, okay. See you all guys right. later. Right. See you guys later. Have a great weekend. Bye.